0: Now tonight, questions and answers. There are some weeks that uh, this falls on the first week, but since last week did not work, my being gone, then uh, I didn't get to present it, so this evening is going to be our questions and answers. And there are some topics and some texts which are challenging, and uh, quite frequently people will come up and say, will you address this in your questions and answers? And the two questions that I have tonight were asked of me standing in the audience and saying, will you address the subject? And I said, yes, I will. And I'll say, do you want to write the question out? And they'll say, you write it out for me. So if you get to let me write the question, I'm going to write it the way I want it. It makes it easier to answer. What is needed is information. Five times the Apostle Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Our challenge is sometimes just simply to know more of what the Bible says. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, a very basic passage, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep. People who pass away, what is going to happen when they pass away? That's a significant question. And the answer to that is to provide information. Well, this question, these questions for this month are going to require some search for information. And so here's the first question. This came a few weeks ago on Sunday. I preached a lesson that I was going to use in Indianapolis. And I made reference to the fact that there were some who believed that you should not eat in the church building. A discussion happened after the lesson. And someone said, are there people who really believe that? And I said, yes, there are. I said, many of those who believe that are of a certain group of people. And they said, well, what else do they not believe? And I said, well, one of them is church cooperation. And so the question is, what is church cooperation? Is it scriptural for two or more churches to cooperate in a spiritual endeavor? I got to write that question. So uh, that's the idea. Is it scriptural? Is it right for churches to cooperate? Well, this is a part of the discussion of liberalism on one hand and what has sometimes been referred to as anti-ism on the other hand. Many people are not familiar with these terms or they may have heard the term liberal but perhaps not anti-ism. Liberalism is being more permissive than God. When God says something, it's just, no, you don't have to worry about that. You can do more than what God has said anti on the other hand, is to be more restrictive than God, than to say that God has said we can do something, and you can say, no, you can't do that either, to make a law for God. The best examples that I can give you from Scripture to illustrate the point, and these are just very basic, liberalism is found in the, what is said by Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God had said, of every tree of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you may not eat, lest you die. And the devil said, no, you can eat of it. Just go right ahead. God won't hold you accountable. In fact, he knows the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. On the other hand, antiism says that you can't do certain things. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verses 1 through 5, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now listen carefully to verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. You see, in their minds, there are some people that say, you can't do this and you can't do that, when in reality, God has permitted it. So for a person to say you can't do something that God says you can do is to make a law that God did not make. You see, the matter at issue here is Bible authority. What does God want? What has God authorized? And as you and I approach the Bible, we ought to be asking the question so that we don't go to either extreme. We don't permit things that God doesn't permit and we don't bind or prohibit things that God has allowed that we make sure we ask the question, what does God want? And specifically, when God gives a command and its specific There can be no deviation. There can be no change. When God said, this is what I want, that's all that you can do. Let me give you a good biblical illustration. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. When God told Noah to build the ark and he told him to build it Out of gopher wood, there was no other type of wood that would be permissible to God because that's the only thing that God wanted. He designated it. He was specific about it. On the other hand, when God gives a command and is not specific, He allows man to choose the most expedient manner that he wishes. For instance in the giving of the Great Commission in Mark 16 and verse 15, and he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go. Well, God, how do you want me to go? He did not specify. There are some people who would use ships to be able to go from one location to the other. The Apostle Paul did that frequently. Paul also walked. He used his two feet to go. There were people who used other means, perhaps camels or other beast of burden to be able to go from one place to the other. Why would God not be specific here? Perhaps he knew that in the future that man would have an internal combustion engine and could drive a long way and be able to use that means to travel. Or perhaps even to be able to go into the air and fly like a bird. Perhaps even in our future there may even be other means of transportation And if there are, they would fulfill the command to go, and God has not specified. So you see, where there's specifics, you do that. Where there's not specifics, you may choose. So I ask the question, may one church assist another church in doing a job that's too big for that church to do alone? I have what I think is a good biblical passage to look at. And I'm going to ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is a very interesting passage where Luke is describing for us our Lord's teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. My guess it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of Capernaum. We read beginning with verse 1, so it was when the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. I I can visualize that. There's so many people coming up to the Lord, they're crowding around him, people can't get close enough, and so the Lord gets in a boat, puts out a little bit from the land, Everybody sitting on the shore can hear him, but they're not crowding him. They're not pressuring him. But you pick up in verse 4, it says, When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word I will let down the net. And so when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, And their net was breaking. Now listen carefully to verse 7. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Can one boat help another boat catch the fish? We need help. Will you come? Will you help us be able to catch these fish and to haul them in? Well, I'd suggest to you, if you start looking in the Bible, that is a pattern that can be illustrated both in benevolence and evangelism. Let me illustrate it to you first in benevolence. Multiple churches cooperated in collecting money for the needy saints in Jerusalem. There were brethren who were in Jerusalem who were going through a very difficult time and they needed some support, some financial support. You go to Romans 15, verses 25 through 27. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is up in the area of northern Greece. Achaia is down where Corinth and Athens is at. To make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them and indeed they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things. Their duty is also to minister to them in spiritual things or material things. Now, when you get to 1 Corinthians and Paul is talking to one of those churches of Achaia, talking to Corinth, here's what he said to them. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also... On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. There will be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever is approved by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Paul says, I want you to know, you churches of Achaia, that I gave these same instructions to the churches of Galatia, so there's multiple churches involved. Get to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness of which I behost to the, of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was prepared a year ago. And your zeal to start up the majority. You have a number of churches coming together to do a work, a benevolent work. We've done that here at Bobby Branch. We've collected money for people who have been uh, the victims of hurricanes. In fact, we did that last year. That's a, a worthy effort to try to help brethren who are in need. The church has also co- cooperated in evangelistic work, particularly in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18... Paul writes, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Now that's a very significant verse there. No church from the beginning of the gospel shared with me in giving and receiving, but you only. If I were to ask you the question from this verse, how many churches sent money for Paul? And you'd say, well, nobody did that but you. But he uses the words giving and receiving. Ah, that means that the church at Philippi had received money from others as well. And somebody says, what do you mean by that? You go to 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8. Paul says, I robbed other churches. Plural. Taking wages from them that I might minister to you. Paul's not contradicting himself from Philippians and 2 Corinthians. What we understand is, is that the church at Philippi collected money. They received it and they sent it. To the Apostle Paul, but you see, there's some concerns and there's some abuses that people are worried about, and uh, it's worth a little bit of time to explain why people feel that churches ought not, ought not to cooperate with one another. And the first one is is the concern for the loss of church autonomy. When you look in the Bible, it's very plain that every congregation was operating upon the oversight of their own elders. There wasn't a group up here that says, okay, you church over here, you've got to do this. You church, you've got to do that. Every congregation was autonomous. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Paul would, or Peter would write, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. What group of people did those elders oversee? It was the one who was among them. And so our elders do not shepherd other congregations. It's this congregation that they shepherd. But you see, there was an event that took place in the 1840s. We're talking about 150 years ago now or more. What took place is there was a number of places that would say we we need to be able to carry the gospel into areas where the gospel has not been preached. So we're going to send missionaries there. And that was a good idea, a good plan. We need to send missionaries. We need to carry the gospel. So what they did, they said, we're going to create a missionary society, an organization, if you will. And it was going to be distinct from the church. In other words, elders were not over this organization. It's not overseen by elders. It was a separate organization. And what would take place is local churches would send representatives to the missionary society. And then the missionary society would decide where the money was going to be sent by the way the members voted. And so you would have members who were voting. And then they would come back and tell the congregations, this is the way we're going to do it. And those decisions. But you see, in the Bible, there is no institution above the local church. There's no super organization that says, okay, we're going to rule over churches. The church is God's missionary society. Not this separate organization. And so sometimes when people say, I don't believe in churches cooperating together. What do you mean by that? Is it Churches working together, as we've described, I've already shown you scriptural, or is it some organization that, uh, that people are sending their money to that's doing the work rather than the church, which is overseen by elders? So my answer is, in answer, trying to answer this question that was asked, is it scriptural? Sure, it's scriptural for churches to cooperate, but it's not scriptural to have some sort of organization above and beyond the local church. Question number two, please explain Calvinism. Who is this doctrine from, and is it true? Now, I didn't realize that um, I hadn't preached on Calvinism in quite a while. In fact, I thought, well, I preached on that just a few months ago, and I went back, and it wasn't a few months ago, and I looked, well, maybe it was a year ago or a couple years ago, and it's about five years ago. And then I realized maybe there are people who've got questions, and it needs to be answered. Because we often will say the Calvinists believe this. The doctrine is named after the reformer John Calvin who lived from 1509 to 1564 A.D. He took many of his ideas from a man by the name of Augustine who lived from 354 to 430 A.D. And uh, both Augustine and Calvin believed That the sovereignty of God was so certain that no one can defeat the will of God. That whatever God wills will happen. And so if God wills that this person be saved, they're going to be saved whether they want to be or not. If God wills that a person will not be saved, they'll be lost regardless of what they want to do. And it is given by the acronym TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. And someone wrote it. Thing that I thought was worthy of copying. Is it a flower from God or a thorn from the devil or from Satan? Well, the TULIP, the words are an acronym. T stands for total depravity, which means that a person is born with no good will within him. He inherits his parents' sins. He inherits his parents' desire for evil. And he is born with a sinful nature. U stands for unconditional election. There's no conditions placed on it. God elects to save certain ones. He chooses who He wishes. And the ones He does not wish, He does not choose them. There's nothing that you can do about it. And then the L is for limited atonement. Saying that Jesus didn't die for everybody. The atonement was only for the elect. I is for irresistible grace. To say that if God chooses to save you, His grace is irresistible. You can't turn your back on Him. If God says, I'm going to save Tony, God's going to overrule my own will. And P is for the perseverance of the saints. You perhaps heard it stated, once saved, always saved. Well, a very brief response to that would be is for total depravity is man as a sinner by his own choices, not by inheritance. A very easy verse is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous, shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. What does that mean? Whatever my parents did has no effect on whether or not I am righteous before God. What I do has no effect upon my children as to whether or not they or I can be righteous before God. Unconditional election says that God only desired to save a certain few that He elected. But the Bible says that God wants everybody to be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Not some men, all men to be saved. And you read in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, he opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears God fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. doesn't matter what nation you're from or who you are. You work righteousness, you do what is right, God will accept you. The limited atonement says that Jesus only died for the elect. But Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, We see this Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God, might taste of death for the elect. It's not what he says for everyone. Jesus died for every good person and every bad person. Jesus died for those who would strive to please him in their lives and he would die for those who will shake their fist in his face. Yes, he tasted of death for everyone. It is said that the grace of God cannot be resisted. But Stephen, guided by the Holy Spirit, said in Acts 7 and verse 51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. You can resist God. You can resist His mercy, His grace, His love, His kindness that has been manifested toward you and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. And finally, the perseverance of the saints. Can a Christian so sin as to be eternally lost? I read this past week, probably a dozen men who tried to defend saying, oh yes, you can sin, you can stumble, you can trip but you can't be lost. James 5 verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You turn someone around who's going to torment you've saved his soul from an eternal death. But Hebrews chapter 10 verse 36 For you have need of endurance that after you have done the will of God you may receive the promise. For yet a little while and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith but if anyone draws back my soul has no pleasure in him but we're not those who draw back. To perdition, to destruction, but those who believe to the saving of the soul, the writer of the book of Hebrews is driving home the point it is possible for us to sin so as to be lost. The questions tonight related to doctrine, they are questions as to how you and I should conduct ourselves, and the answers are to always be found not in man's opinions. But in the Word of God, Matthew 15 and verse 9, Jesus says, In vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Wherever and whenever we find ourselves guided by the doctrines of men, we cannot please God. And so we should make sure that everything we do is what God has called upon man to do. We're going to sing the song number 356. If you need to obey the gospel tonight, The baptistry is ready for you. There's garments ready. It's just simply your choice as to what you want to do tonight. You want to become a Christian? Because of your faith, repent of your sins, come forward and we'll baptize you tonight. If you're a Christian who needs to come home, we invite you to do that as together we stand and sing.